We are returning this morning to Paul's letter to the Romans. Before I went on holiday, we finished looking at chapter 8. And so this morning, we come to chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 9. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1135. And in the large print Bibles, 1756. Romans 9, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, But Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is God's word. But as we read these verses, we have to ask, what are they doing here? Why is Romans chapter 8 followed by this? If you remember Romans 8, it was filled with blessings and promises of more blessings for God's people. We were told that we are uncondemned. The Holy Spirit is with us and interceding for us. We are sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have future glory ahead of us. We have God's promise that he is working for our good in everything. We have the promise that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then we have Romans 9, talking about Israel. 
What's the link with chapter 8? I think the connection is the issue of God's faithfulness. The blessings and promises of chapter 8 depend on God being trustworthy. But Paul knows of at least one reason why people might question God's trustworthiness. That reason is the unbelief of Israel. The New Testament shows that Jesus was largely rejected by Israel. Yes, it's true that the first disciples were Jews and the first converts too. But as Paul and others took the gospel message across the world, it was generally Gentiles who accepted that message. The book of Acts shows that when Paul went to a new area, he preached first to the Jews in that area. And the usual pattern was they gave very little positive response. In fact, they often opposed and persecuted him because of his message about Jesus. But the Gentiles were often very responsive. And that reality seems to create a problem. It seems to call God's faithfulness into question. Why? Because the Old Testament is full of promises made to Israel. Promises of blessing. Promises that God will be their God. And they will be his people. But what's happening to those promises? Has God forgotten them? Has he broken them? And if the answer is yes, he has forgotten them or broken them, then how can you and I trust him to keep the promises of Romans 8? I think that's why Romans 9 is here. And in fact, this section runs from chapter 9 through to the end of chapter 11. And yes, at one level, these chapters are here to help us understand Israel's situation today. But even more than that, it's here to show us that our God is trustworthy. That's why chapters 9 to 11 have sometimes been called the justification of God. These chapters are as close as the Bible ever comes to explaining the ways of God to us. Most of the time, the Bible is content to say God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. But here we get some explanation of God's mysterious ways. And the purpose is to help us worship him and trust him. That's what Paul himself does at the end of chapters 9 to 11. After giving us a glimpse into God's mind and God's plans, Paul ends the section by saying, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So don't be afraid of what's in these chapters. Some people react that way. They read things here that just blow their minds. And they want to look away. They don't want to know. But let's pray that God will open our minds and hearts to take in what we find here. 
Let's ask him to bring our minds and hearts in line with his. One preacher says that our God is a God of jagged peaks and fathomless depths. And in this life, we will never fully grasp those peaks and those depths. But let's pray that we'll grasp them a little bit more as we look at these chapters. And if we do, we'll also love and trust and worship God a little bit more. So let's turn to the verses that we read. And Paul begins this passage by setting out for us the problem of unbelief among the Israelites. Their unbelief is a problem for two reasons. First of all, these are people that Paul loves. Look again at chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. These verses are very significant. And the reason they're significant is because what comes after them is some very deep theology. And without these opening verses, we might imagine that deep theology is written by some academic with his head in the clouds. We might imagine that Paul is cold and detached, that he's unmoved by the things he's talking about. We might imagine, for example, that talk about election could only come from a cold, heartless person. To elect is to choose. For example, we elect our local MP out of the various people who stand for the seat. And election is the act of choosing. In chapter 9, Paul is going to point to the truth that God chooses to save some and not others. And we might imagine you have to be cold and heartless to embrace that truth. But verses 1 to 4 show us that is not the case. These verses show us a man who cares deeply about people. In fact, his love for his own people moves Paul to say things you and I would probably never dare to say. Paul is so emotional about his fellow Jews, he says that if he was allowed to, and if it would do them any good, he'd pray that he could go to hell so his fellow Jews could be saved. Verse 3, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. So when you hear Paul talking about election in this chapter, don't think he is careless and cold about people's eternal destiny. Paul cares about people. 
It tears him up to see people heading to an eternity away from God. In verse 2, it causes him great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. If you have children of your own, or parents or friends who don't belong to Christ, then chapter 9 is a tough chapter. Election might feel like an uncomfortable truth. But please see that Paul is right there with you on that. Paul loves his own people as much as you love yours. But he loves God even more. As much as Paul cares about his own people, the Jews, he cares more about the honor and glory of his God. And that's why he can love and approve the ways of God, even as he hurts for his fellow Jews who are far away from God. Israel's unbelief is a problem for Paul on a personal level, because they're people he loves. And it's also a problem because they are incredibly privileged people. In the middle of verse 4, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Back in the book of Exodus, when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, God's message to Pharaoh was, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. And when Pharaoh finally, against his will, did let the Israelites go, God gave them the law at Mount Sinai. The law that shows so much of what God himself is like what he loves and what he hates. And at various points in Israel's history, God made covenant promises to bless and multiply Israel. He actually came and lived among the Israelites, first in a tent called the tabernacle, then in a temple in Jerusalem. Israel was an incredibly privileged nation. And the latest and greatest privilege is the fact that God's promised Messiah came from the nation of Israel. Jesus' human parents were both Jews. And the reason Paul mentions all this is because it seems to add up to a problem. It seems unthinkable that many Israelites are rejecting God's Messiah. It seems unthinkable they would reject him and unthinkable that God would let them. We may feel the same about people who grow up with the privilege of Christian parents and with the benefits of church life and Bible teaching. How can they go on to reject Christ? If they do, does it mean God has been unfaithful? Have his word and his promises failed? Those are all very reasonable questions to ask. 
And in reply, Paul explains the reality of God's free choice. In verse 6, Paul says, It is not as though God's word had failed. And then he tells us why it hasn't failed. He shows us God has always chosen people, not because of their physical birth or their upbringing or their place in society or even their good deeds. No, God has always chosen purely according to his freedom to choose who he will, according to his own purposes, regardless of anything else. When Psalm 115 says, our God does whatever pleases him, it really means that. The choices God makes are genuinely free. They are not constrained or limited by anything or anyone else. God does what it pleases him to do. Not what any circumstance or person forces or influences him to do. And Paul shows us this truth by pointing to two examples. First, the example of Isaac and Ishmael. The background to what Paul says is fine in the book of Genesis. When Abraham was 75 years old and his wife Sarah was 65, God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And in the years that followed, God repeated that promise several times. But by the time Abraham was 85, he still had no children. And so Abraham and Sarah came up with their own plan to produce an heir for God to bless. Abraham had a child with Sarah's Egyptian slave girl, Hagar. The child was called Ishmael. And Abraham prayed to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. In other words, here you are, God. With my own wisdom and effort, I have put everything in place for you. Now surely you must bless him. But God says, no. I have chosen to produce an heir through your wife, Sarah. And we read the passage earlier where Abraham and Sarah, at the ages of 99 and 89, are told they're going to have a child that year. Sarah laughs. She laughs because she believes even God is not free to do that. But scripture tells us a year later, Isaac is born. And this incident shows not only that nothing is too hard for God, it also shows a crucial principle of scripture. We cannot produce children of God. We cannot decide who God is going to bring into his family. Abraham and Sarah had plans. But God was working to his own plan. And his plan was not going to be derailed by the arrival of Ishmael. Nor by the fact that Sarah was in her late 80s by this time. That's the background to what we read here 
in Romans 9 verse 6. For it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. In other words, there are many Israelites. There are many physical descendants of Abraham. But their physical descent from Abraham does not guarantee anything. Just as God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael, so he goes on choosing who will inherit his blessing. That's what Paul means by not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. There is a physical nation of Israel consisting of everyone who's born to Jewish parents. And there is another Israel chosen by God from within the physical nation of Israel. It's that second Israel God has committed to bless. So all those Old Testament promises are not being broken. Ishmael and Isaac show God never promised to bless simply because people are physical descendants of Abraham. He has always decided by his own free choice who will inherit his promises. As someone has said, what counts is grace, not race. And in our situation, the lesson is that we can't engineer true conversions. God brings men and women into his family according to his own free choice. And as in the case of Isaac, God often does things you and I would never have imagined. If we knew the details of God's plans in advance, the way Sarah did, we would almost certainly laugh the way Sarah did. God plans and then he does things that are beyond our imagination. But if we've been following closely up to this point, we might think we've found a little loophole in what Paul is saying here. In the story of Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael's mother, Hagar, was an Egyptian. And she wasn't Abraham's wife. So really, we might think, it's not too surprising God would see the need to bypass Ishmael and bring Isaac along. But surely, we might think, if Hagar had been an Israelite, and if Ishmael had been legitimate, then God would have chosen him. Paul is aware of that kind of thinking. And so he immediately adds the example of Jacob and Esau. And here, the loophole we've just talked about is closed. Verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, Before the twins were born, or had done anything, good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Genesis tells us that the child of the promise, Isaac, went on to conceive twins with his wife, Rachel. So any distinctions there were in the case of Ishmael and Isaac are removed in the case of Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. In terms of equal potential, you can't get much more equal than twins in the womb. And yet, God chooses to bless one and not the other. And in fact, as he does so, he overturns the one inequality there is in the situation. According to cultural practice, the first twin out of the womb was regarded as the oldest. That was important because the oldest son became the main heir. But notice, before the birth, God announced that the second twin out would inherit his blessing. That was Jacob. And that issue of inheritance explains the statement that sounds so harsh to us in verse 13. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We all understand that hate is the opposite of love. So whatever love means in this context, hate means the opposite. And here, God's love for Jacob is not so much an emotion as it is an action. He loves Jacob by choosing him to inherit the blessing that was promised to Abraham. So hatred in this context means the opposite of that. God does not choose Esau to inherit that blessing. And the point is, God chooses freely. Faced with twins that have an identical heritage, God chooses one and he does not choose the other. And his choice overrules the one difference between them. The human custom that the first one born should be the blessed one. God's choice is free. It's based on his purposes and plans alone. Not any human custom or initiative or preference. In verse 11, Paul mentions God's purpose in election. But he doesn't give any explanation of what that purpose is. He will do that in the passage we'll look at next week. He'll give us some insight into why God chooses the way he does. But for now, the point is, God is God. He chooses according to his plans and purposes alone. That's what this passage teaches. Now I want us to think for a few moments about one clarification and two implications of this teaching. First, the clarification, and this is very important. The truth of this passage does not give us any reason to be fatalistic. In chapter 10, Paul will tell us that everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He will say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So the truth of God's free choice does not do away with the responsibility of non-Christians to turn from their sin and run to God for salvation. And God's free choice does not do away with the responsibility of Christians to tell non-Christians about the only way of salvation in Jesus. And God's free choice does not give us permission to think that anyone is beyond the reach of God's grace. In both the examples we've seen from the Old Testament, God defied all human expectations about who would enter his family. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. Time is not a factor in God's choice. How do we know that God cannot finally melt the heart of that elderly neighbor? Keep praying for your unsaved relatives and friends. Keep pointing them to Jesus. As long as they are alive, God may still intervene in their lives. God is just as free to save a five-year-old as a 105-year-old. And God is just as free to step in and save a card-carrying atheist as he is to save an interested churchgoer. He's just as free to save your Muslim colleague as he is to save anyone else you work with. The truth of this passage does not give us any reason to be fatalistic. It's here to exalt God's freedom. It's not here to diminish our responsibilities. Each one of us is still called to repent and believe. And the church's mission is still to share the good news. And pray for men and women to be saved. And back up our message with holy lives. That's the clarification. Now, two implications from the truth of this passage. First, the truth of this passage gives us reason to be confident. We can depend on the promises of Romans chapter 8. We've seen that Jewish unbelief does not mean God is unfaithful to his Old Testament promises. Ishmael and Esau prove God never committed to save every physical descendant of Abraham. God is committed to fulfill his promises to his spiritual children. And if you have come to Jesus for salvation, you are included in God's spiritual children. You are an heir to all of God's promises. We can be confident. And finally, the second implication. The truth of this passage gives us reason to worship God. 
God does not choose according to our worthiness, our background, our IQ. And that fact is either going to humble us if we've been thinking that we deserve his love, or it's going to fill us with relief if we've been realizing there is nothing in us that could attract God's love. John Piper says this, We will never understand or experience the fullness of God's love until we grasp what it means to be chosen freely by God on the basis of nothing in us. We learn from the New Testament that God's free choice cost him an almost unbelievable price. He chose us freely, but he paid dearly to make us his children. And when we understand there was nothing in us to attract God to choose us, then we begin to grasp how amazing Jesus' death was. He died for people who could never deserve such a sacrifice. And as one writer has reflected on that, he wrote these words. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. That is the proper response to the truth of God's love. It's the proper response to the truth of God's free choice. We're going to respond together to what we've heard as we sing how deep the Father's love for us. And then behold our God.